Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, Des. Cahill here. And today's guest to the island is one of the most talented and popular singers in Ireland. She's been described as having the grief of Billie Holiday, the soul of Van Morrison, the defiance of Edith Piaf. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mary Coughlin. And Mary, I see your new album coming out. It's called Life Stories. And you've packed some stories into your life. Hasn't always been easy. Hasn't always been easy, but always interesting, yeah. I didn't write songs always. I would sing songs that I liked that other people sang that really impacted on me, you know, and I felt that I could identify with them. And I started, well, I wrote a book and I wrote a play, Woman Undone, a couple of years ago with uh, two guys from Dublin called um, Broken Talkers, which I laid out the whole thing like there, you know, from start to finish. Uh, but it's very unusual because it was composed, the music was composed by an Icelandic guy, Valgur Sigurdsson, and we sang the whole thing, me and four other women. I could talk about it, like in an interview like this, I can talk about, you know, the difficulties with addiction and stuff and abuse and all that, but to actually put it in, to give it other legs, you know, yeah. it's I find difficult. I worked with Pete Lannister, as I have before. Um, he's a guy I first met working with Kirsty McCall and Alison Moya years ago. Um, I, he was working with Turns Trent Derby when I met him first. And You're dropping some names there now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was oh, yeah. kind of places our room. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it was suggested that I would work with him and I wasn't too fond of the idea at first because I had a good friend and who was my producer for years and years and years. But sometimes you just have to move out mm-hmm. of your zone. So I phoned him very early in January 2000 and no, late in January or November, December 2018 and he said we could start work in 2019. His calendar was quite full. And we ha- are good friends. Yeah. And I have met him um, through working on Kirsty concerts over the year. Because there's a one year, five year, ten year. This year was going to be a big, huge anniversary concert tour. But sure, that's gone. Yeah. Anyways, we started working and we started writing together. Because he was, you know, he knows my story. Yeah. And he said, you have to get it out there and... The most the most recent song that we wrote at the end of the whole thing was is the first single, which is called Two Break It Into One. And it's about my second marriage breakup. But we got it out there and um that was that was fifteen years waiting to come out, you know. And um I believe it's a hit. And 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 you're you felt better for it. Yeah, it was quite painful mm, putting his writing down, you know. And he is a songwriter and a producer. And he took lines that I had written and he said, OK, this is a huge, like, things I wouldn't be aware of. That is a very powerful image, dressed up like a queen, you know. Mm-hmm. It was in my wedding dress, you know. Okay, he said, OK, well, let's put that line over there and put all these ones over here. And this this line, you know, two breaking into one. What's, what does that mean? What, what do you mean by that? We were one yeah. and now we're apart. Yeah, yeah. And then I have no, absolutely, I'm quite a lazy singer. I kind of, pick keys that are easy for me to sing in and he said well you know you do have much more capacity to sing in higher registers and I said no I don't and he said you do 
and he says, here, sing along with this, you know. And so, you know, he really pushed me. Yeah, good. But yeah. in a very, very comfortable way. Yeah. It took us a year and a half to make the album. And I spent most of it in his house. And his wonderful wife, Ingrid, would, oh, my God, I just <laughs> ate my way through the <laughs> year, you know. So it was really good. Your mom kind of got you singing first, was it? My mother lived next door to her mother. And I had two uncle, uncles, Kenneth and Gabriel. And one of them was an Elvis fan and one of them was a Beatles fan. And Kenneth went down to queue up all night outside the music shop in Galway for Sgt. Peppers. Right. That was like a thing that I remember forever. And Gay used to go down and he used to have a little box on the back of his bicycle with a little thing, you know, the little, the old bicycles and he used to have a thing to strap on. Yeah. A box of singles, all Elvis. And they had an Elvis fan club in Galway. And every Tuesday night they'd go down to this guy, David Brophy's house and they would listen to singles, yeah. you know. And then when I bought my first record. What was your first record? The first record, the first album I got. I couldn't afford an album, so I got an album which was the soundtrack to Easy Rider because it had loads of songs from everybody I loved, okay? Um, The first single I had was I'd Rather Go Blind. Um, Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes was another one. Blackberry Way by The Move. I collected singles. Goodbye, yeah. I'd, um, oh, Procol Harum, you know, I had all those singles. I had a summer job. When I was 12, and I used to buy a little single every weekend, you know. What were you working at? I was working in the GTM, packing shelves. Where did you sing? Just at home? At um, oh, yeah. never. I never sang. Yeah. Mammy always sang. Um, she would sing around the house. She used to sing in, on the car. Endless hours of um, driving to Donegal to see my grandparents. She would sing um, all Guy Mitchell songs. And then Itsy Bitsy, Teensy Weensy, Yellow Polka, yeah, those, those kind of yeah. things. But she sang constantly, you know. And then my father would sing Bridie Gallagher songs because he's from Donegal. <laughs> and the homes of Donegal, I sang it at his funeral. Actually, somebody said. great song. I married to a Donegal woman. It, it is a great song. You know, I've just been listening to it for so many years and, and there's a connection there because one of the first times I sang <clears throat> in Belfast, she sent me flowers. Who did? Bridie Gallagher. You're joking. I'm not. And she never knew that my father yeah. obviously listened yeah. to her every day and yeah. drove us crazy. And I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I'd like to tell my father, you know, and he just and she phoned me in the hotel I was staying in. I think it was the Europa. She'd had bereavement in her family. Her son had died in a motorbike accident or something. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. This is a surreal moment now because I'm just remembering yeah. it again. But Daddy was so chuffed. That his daughter met Bridie Gallagher, you know. But your first musical choice then is from that era. Yeah, I'd rather go blind. I used to go to a place in Salt Hill in Galway, uh, which had a jukebox as well. So if you couldn't afford to buy a record, you'd go out there. But I used to listen to this song all the time. And there was a guy, uh, John Carney was the manager. I know himself and his wife, Frida, very well. And I used to cry listening to this song. I mean, it's just bawling, crying. And he opened up the the jukebox one day he says here Mary he says now you can imagine the language he used to be this is an amusement arcade we're sick and tired of looking at you so he handed it to me and I still have it Do you? and there was a hole in the middle of it and I had to get a little triangle made from oh, course, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and put it in so I could play it on the record player at home Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 that's Chicken Shack and I'd rather go blind the choice of today's guest singer, Mary Coughlin. Before your first gig, you didn't start as a youngster going on stage or anything. She didn't. Oh no, I was 29. I was 29. Um, so I, I met Eric Visser. I came back from London. I think I was nine, 20 when I came back from London. And I'd been living there for two years, uh, up to various developmental. I was macrobiotic. 
which is like vegan, vegan extraordinaire mm. before the world was ever even invented. We didn't even we didn't eat anything basically. So brown rice and seaweed. Came back from came back from there. I was living in sin with my husband at the time, who became my husband later. We were forced into marriage by the ways of Ireland. We came home, and I definitely wasn't going home. And he went home, and I rented a house in Salt Hill with a few people. Patsy McGarry, um, he writes yeah. to the Irish Times. Now, he comes in here a lot, doesn't he? Does, yeah. I love Patsy. Yeah. I was talking to him the other night. And a girl from Waterford, and another Patsy from Lockray, another girl, and myself. We met this guy down the pub on it, um, down the cottage bar in Salt Hill, and he was um, very tall, six foot four or five or six. He was playing the guitar, and he'd come to learn music. We got chatting. I sang a song, as you do at a session. Yeah. I would have sung some old Irish song or an English song, English folk song. And we got chatting and he'd just come to Ireland to study Irish music and he was with um, a Breton classical guitarist. So they ended up staying and your man went back to Brittany. Eric stayed on in Galway. And I got pregnant that year and, you know, long story short, I got knocked on by a car, spent 12 weeks in hospital in Galway flat on my back and Eric was the only one who had nothing to do so he used to come in nearly every day with a bottle of lemonade and um, and, a, and um, a guitar and he'd play away tunes and the nurses loved him and um, I wasn't in the maternity hospital I was in the long yeah, ward yeah. everyone loved him and he wrote a tune for my daughter Aoife when she was born well he wrote the tune while I was yes, pregnant yeah. and it was number one in Holland and Belgium and Germany wow. in the classical jazz charts yeah. He went off and became a really well-known, famous musician. Married a woman from Galway. Well, from Dublin, living in Galway. After about five years of being on the road, he said, OK, it's your turn now. I know you can do this. And I would like for you to sing some songs that I've written. Yeah. So that was tired and emotional. And I was 29. And that was the mid-80s, kind of, wasn't it? 80, it was 84. Yeah. And um, I started travelling around um, but Dublin. The huge success. That was very successful. Which oh, is, yeah, Mark yeah. Cagney played it on the radio. <laughs> that was it. He played a whole side of it. My mother rang me. I was living out in Hull. Mary, you're on the radio. <laughs> so the previous week, I had I did a gig in the, the Harcourt Hotel mm -hmm. and Keith Donald was in the band. Most of Moving Hearts were in my band. Yeah. I picked them very carefully. There were four people at the gig. Oh my God. Four. And that, and we moved from downstairs and we moved up to the bar and we said, oh God, we'll just play a few tunes here for the four people that came. And I said, OK, that's the end of my dream, you know. Mark Cagney started playing the album the following. That was Sunday night. Monday night he got the album, started playing it. And he played a whole side every night. There was three or four hundred people killing each other trying to get in the following week. You're joking. I'm not, no. That's how powerful the radio is. Was. Yeah. In those days, I love I love the radio. I was saying to you earlier, I, I listened to it now from morning to night. I woke up last night and fake no brain. I was still banging away <laughs> twenty minutes to two, uh, playing an. In fairness to him, was probably a repeat of that stage. No, no, he, he does the late shift <laughs> yeah, yeah. for Carl Murray's having yeah, a baby. Or Carl's Carl's wife. I don't know the woman, yeah. but I know the intimate details <laughs> of these people's lives through this lockdown. They've had a child. Congratulations, mm. and fake no. Um, is doing extra shifts and yeah. John Creedon so I go walking for John Creedon and then you know I go to bed and then I listen 11 o'clock turn on the radio and late days the late company. news and late night yeah. yeah it's pathetic but there you go the life of a rock star no, yeah. but <laughs> the late late show was, would have been huge for you and the story how you got on the late late show was extraordinary yeah 
I mean, I've had such a blessed and well, in that way, you know, I've had lots of coincidences. I did a show and we sent a tape up to RTE. It was called Sounds Promising. And Shea Healy and Siobhan McHugh, McHugh were playing the tapes here in the radio centre. Mm. And my husband at the time, Finton, had written a song for me called The Double Cross. And meet me where they played the blues. And I think we did a version of Billy Holiday's Nobody's Business in which we did a tango in the middle. It was quite unusual. Mm. And they were mixing and listening to all the, I can imagine what they were doing, you know, listening to the cassette. And Gay Byrne was leaving his morning show and he walked, you know. Just walking past the corridor. Walking past the corridor. And he said, who's that? And they said, it's a woman in Galway. She sings kind of jazzy, bluesy stuff, you know. And he said, oh, what's her name? You know. So I actually appeared on, on um, the Late Late Show before that Sounds Promising thing, I think. Great. He just nabbed me. Uh, he rang a guy in Galway called Christy Dooley, who was a jazz player with the Guinness Jazz Band in Galway. And he would go to the jazz festival in Cork every year. And Gay was a big friend of Peter O'Brien's and a big mm. jazz fan. Yeah. And Christy, we had no phone, but my granny had a phone because my grandfather had a heart attack. So Christy, he rang Christy Dooley. <laughs> Christy Dooley cycled up to my grandmother's house <laughs> to pass on the message that you know these people want to talk to me you know it was outrageous fantastic yeah. well your second musical choice is Billie Holiday and, and like she was become a big part of your I was living in London and I bought a record in Portobello Road called Lady in Satin which I still have which was her last album she was only 48 when she died and it was the last album she did and it's with an orchestra you know I told you you could play any of those songs and they'd mm. break your heart you know so um, I still have that record too I didn't grow up listening to her I, I grew up without knowing even ever, I never heard of her name until I was 18 and then the first several years of having babies and living in Galway in Lakewood Park I'd be around the house singing good morning heartache washing nappies with the nappies then and putting them from one bucket into another mm. and nobody's business you know and and I had s some connection with yeah. with her you know Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 there were parallels in your lives, really, wasn't there? She struggled with addiction. Oh, she's, yeah. yeah. Well, she died yeah. um, in hospital when she was 48. And I know secrets that my life has been mm. riddled with it. And I almost died when I was, I suppose, about 30, 35, 36, in the matter uh, with a tube in my neck helping me to breathe. I still remember that. It was St. Patrick's weekend, 27 years ago, almost. Mm. Yeah, it was... It was um, it was touch and go and they sent for my family and everything. I just, yeah, I went, I went from from there into the Rutland Centre. And you had to, and you had to, have, you had to be resilient, didn't you? I mean, was it? I've been resilient yeah. since the day I was born. <laughs> um, my mother, my father, was a, uh, I used to drink tea out of a bottle because I didn't like milk. <laughs> I used to put black tea into a bottle when my mother stopped breastfeeding me. I've, I don't know, I've, I've often thought about it. I would always rail against, you know, if somebody said you weren't going to do something, I'd do it, you know. So whatever happened to me that night in the hospital, even though I was still thinking about when will I get out of here and go for a drink, I kind of knew the that part of it was over, you know. But it took me two years to, not not from that point, but I knew two years previous to that, but I knew that I was, I can't go anymore. So I went to the Rutland Centre and I started uh, counselling with a wonderful therapist called Maura Russell. I did that for about seven years. And then I wanted to explore more of the reasons why I, I became who I am or why I was that way. And I did lots of seeking, mm -hmm. soul searching. Which isn't an easy thing to do, I'd imagine. 
good. No, but there's a lot of it on. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of it on that album now. Yeah. So yeah. just why am I the way I am? Why? Why? You know, I'm happy with who I am yeah. now. I think I'm kind of done with the with asking questions, <laughs> except what the hell is going on now <laughs> in the world. The Billy Holiday show you did that was that was big for you, wasn't it? Well, Peter O'Brien. So I had no record label at mm. the time. I was between labels. <laughs> I was dropped by Warner Brothers. Why? Uh, why we dropped me? Was that commercial or? It was commercial. I think yeah. they spent a lot of money on me, and they didn't think I. I had a niche, mm. um, which was I was hugely respected. In Germany, in Holland, in uh, Scandinavia, I could have just lived from from touring there, you know. And then the next album was Warner Brothers, and they wanted me to change producers, mm-hmm. and go in a more pop direction. So they spent an awful lot of money on it. And in one way, I can't, I I I hate them for it. But in another way, I would never. I'd sold out the Opera House in Sydney a couple of years ago. You know, I would never have yeah. gotten that sort of. Um, recognition if it wasn't for the publicity I think they said they spent £200,000 in 1989 on publicity and I was uh, critics choice to the Rolling Stone and the album After the Fall and you know all those you know all those all those places you have to be critically acclaimed but never very commercially successful you know and never sold millions of records or anything so um, yeah they just dropped me anyways Peter O'Brien came into my life the wonderful late great Peter O'Brien and he said well now Mary he said because I have a Billy Holiday song on every album even yeah. before that yeah. yeah I always slipped one in you know yeah. so he said no you can do lots of Billy Holiday songs <laughs> he said let's why not do a show so one thing led to another and before long we had the bones of a show and we approached Pat Egan and he said well we've got to do this we have to do it properly you know so we thought we might run for a week it ran for 10 weeks in Dublin we moved to the Gaiety Theatre because it got bigger and we were there and from there we went to Finland, jazz festivals in Norway, Denmark and New Zealand and Australia. At that stage it was getting hard to, because like, there was 12 in the band, you know, so I had to bring the bones of five mm. like to, Nor- to, to Scandinavia. And then when I went to New Zealand and Australia, I went with just one musician and we worked with the mm. band down there and they're still on my best mates. So and I go down there every year, Fantastic. except not next year. Next year's tour is cancelled. Um, yesterday morning I woke up to an email to say that the festivals in that I had been booked and confirmed mm. to do in 21 are gone into 22. It's and that's probably because of what's going on in Melbourne now, you know. It's been a brutal time for, for your industry, hasn't it? It is. It's been absolutely... Uh, so I had the new album coming out. I, I should have been at Glastonbury this year. I was doing festivals in Norway, Iceland, all over England, all over... Ah, look at... I thought for a minute that it might come back at the end of the summer mm. because they started to reschedule everything into September. You know, June Everybody came. was hoping, but yeah. Then June yeah. came, I got... No, it's gone until next mm. year. So some of the festivals are going ahead in the next summer, we think. You know, we were all put off our pandemic payment. Thousands of musicians mm. were because it's a very weird business. You don't earn all your money in Ireland. I could never earn all the money for a year. So yeah. I never earned 200 quid a week in Ireland, but they wouldn't accept my I have a tax number and a business number in New Zealand and Australia. They wouldn't accept my taxes from those countries <laughs> and they tax you heavily there and in Norway. So I appealed it and um, I was reinstated last Tuesday. I nearly went oh through God. the roof. So I'm on it now for another month. <laughs> I'm so happy. I don't know what to do. I don't know. And we're moaning all the time and I moan and everyone moans. And it has been really difficult. But then I went to Scary's last this week. Mm. 
and I did this thing for St. Michael's House and it was just really humbling to to be a part of their evening where there were kids were graduating that yeah. they've been with them for years. You know, myself and Johnny Taylor did some songs really for the parents and the teachers, you know. And it's just like, my God, you know, you really have nothing to worry con- about. Context kind of was you it. Nothing yeah. to worry about, you know, and, and they had a video made of all the children's lives in in the school and all their occasions and mm. And it was going on a bit, I will admit. I was sent to Johnny. I said, God, well, we're at Christmas now. There's Santa going. And I said, we only have six more months to go. And then it stopped. All the pictures stopped at the end of February. It was like, oh, my God, they've had no place to go since then, you know. And the art and music teacher were doing Zoom classes. It gives a context, all right, of how it impacted you. Yeah, yeah. Your final musical choice, Mary Coughlin, Tom Waits. Oh, yeah. Tom Waits. So... I lived in Woodkey in Galway and um, our house, we, we had a whole food co-op and before we opened the co-op, we distributed brown rice and beans from my kitchen every Saturday morning. Two people would go to Dublin, every once a month, two people would go to Dublin on Thursday and buy a hundredweight sack of brown rice and loads of different kinds of beans and seaweeds and exotic things, you know, like that. And umaboshi plums and bring them down to Galway <laughs> and distribute them from the house with the weighing scales. We were, like, that's like in the 80s, you know. Yeah. So there was a guy who came in one day and he had, Mick was his name and he had a big bag of C, uh, albums under his arm. Did you ever hear this fella? And I said, no, Tom Waits, who's he? He says, turn that on there, Mary. He says, you'll never hear the likes of it. And he says, it'll change your life forever. And I I think the first song was Tom Trobert's Blues. And, um, oh my God. And then, what? Who who is this guy? But it was, he was unbelievable. And then I included that in my little set when I was doing little gigs around Galway, wasted and wounded. I mean, he's 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 absolutely just shows you. It was just so unusual, you know. But he leaned heavily on on what I learned from America in the next several years of Brecht and Weil and that kind of European music, you know. Which which was the second album that I did was called Under the Influence, and there were songs there from. Um, Vedicand, um was a German composer in the 20s and some people in the 30s. It opened up a whole sort of thing to yeah, me. Yeah. In 1986, I was discovered and like there was more music outside of what you hear on the radio. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he was um, huge. I ended up working with his producer, Greg Cohen. Uh, he was also his bass player and I worked with him for a year on an album called The Long Honeymoon, which is fine, fine, fine album, you know. But the record company went bust just oh. before it was released. <laughs> and it took me about three years to get it back from them. But um, And it was never... You've really... had, before before we play <laughs> out, you've had some kicks in life and some knocks and... and but as I said... Are you sure? Resilient. Keep getting up. Yeah, and are you in a good place now? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, apart from this, I but I am. Yeah. Um, I have never been at home since 1986, as long as I've been at home these past few months. And I'm just loving it. And as soon as ever the kids came back, were able to come into the house for yeah. my birthday on the 5th of May. It was like, oh God, you know, this is really all the, you know. Yeah. In the end, you know, and seeing my friend and, you know, she left something outside the door for me because I was 64 this year and I was going to have a huge party. <laughs> and people just, we were just coming out again within five kilometres, you know, and stuff like that. And that was really kind of... Yeah was huge you know the whole summer has been absolutely wonderful Good. with mostly kids and grandchildren in the garden because we have a lovely garden up on the side of the sugar loaf but it's just family and really close friends it's been wonderful maybe like, maybe you know. co- that's the one positive covid that's brought us yeah. that kind of it's very funny but like i live with this guy from new zealand who i can't go home yeah. 
and John, and he's kind of wondering when he'll ever yeah. be able to go home again. But it's kind of we we've actually gotten on a lot better because he always comes and goes, comes and goes, and that's that's difficult. It's also great, but it's also difficult. Yeah. The two of us to be on in our beautiful place in Wicklow that we fought really hard to get in the first place because it kept falling through, falling through. And just to sit the other day and looking at all the kids outside, it was just like, it's paradise. You Good. Know? Yeah. Well, I hope it stays that way for you. Yes, me too. For a too. long time to come. Mary Thanks, Catherine, Des, for thank asking Thank you so me. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.